Have you noticed that there's so many books and films and television shows about the end of the world? So many. And at the heart of all of those films is not just the question, what will the end of the world be like? But I think the question that each of those stories is actually exploring and most interested in is how will we live at the end of the world? How will human beings respond to knowing that the world is about to end? What choices will we make? What will our priorities be? What will we think to be most important as the world around us is ending? And if you've watched any of these movies or watched any of these shows or read any of these books, you know that the end of the world, at least in fiction, brings out the best in people and the worst in people. Some people step up and do incredible things to help others, and some people take advantage of the fact that the world is falling apart. But regardless of which direction they go, the consensus in all of these stories is this, that if everyone knew the world was ending tomorrow, everyone would live differently today. And our text this morning is about that. How should we live in the light of the world ending? So 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, Peter writes these words. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this passage begins with the phrase, the end of all things is at hand. Dramatic, right? Peter's got a little dramatic flair here. And if you're paying attention, the first obvious thought is, hold on, Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, Peter's saying, the end is here. The end of all things is at hand. Surely Peter got this one wrong, right? What we have to understand is that what Peter is saying here is that because of Jesus, specifically what Jesus accomplished through his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to heaven, because Jesus did those things, it set in motion the kingdom of God. And the ultimate outcome of all of history, or quote-unquote the end of all things, will be the full experience, manifestation, and realization of the kingdom of God. So in other words, uh, uh, Jesus kind of pushed the snowball down the hill, and it's going and it's going and it's picking up snow, and it's picking up steam, and it's inevitable. And because it's been inaugurated and begun and ushered in, the end of all things is at hand. It came with Christ's resurrection, and it will be consummated upon Jesus' return. So therefore, here's what Peter's saying. Regardless of how many years it is between now and the actual end of the world, we are in the final stages of history because the kingdom of God is here and it's coming. In fact, in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in a special way on those that were gathered, uh, Peter, the same guy that wrote this book, quoted the prophet Joel who said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And so are we in the last days? Yes, biblically we're in the last days. Are we literally in the last days? We don't know for sure. 
It can seem that way at times. All I would say is this. Every generation that has followed Jesus since he ascended to the Father believed they were in the last generation and have lived that way, and so should we. But we are in the end of all times. So how do we live? And there's four things Peter calls us to, and I really am only going to push in on three of them, but I want to mention the first one. The first one is really of a spiritual nature. It's a personal thing. It's about your prayer life. In verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand, so be self-controlled, be self-controlled, and be sober-minded. And let's be honest, if we knew that the world was ending tomorrow, self-control and sober-mindedness would not be the top two characteristics in most human beings. And yet Peter is saying, you can watch the whole world fall apart around you, and sometimes it feels like we are right now. And yet, you can be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, when everyone else is losing their heads, Christians keep their heads. Now, C.S. Lewis, back in 1948, wrote about the atomic bomb. This was on the heels of the end of World War II and the use of the atomic bomb in Japan. And the panic in Europe and around the world about the existence of the atomic bomb was palpable. People realize now what this could mean. And really, since that time, we've all kind of wondered and worried about what will happen when something like this happens again. But, but in the midst of all of this anxiety that they're experiencing in Europe, this is what C.S. Lewis wrote about this. He said, the first action we should take as Christians is to pull ourselves together. <laughs> if we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb... Let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep who can only think about bombs. And he said this, they may break our bodies, but even a microbe can do that. And we, of course, learned that in our lifetime but they need not dominate our minds. What C.S. Lewis is saying, he says earlier in this quote, I was going to read the whole thing to you, but it felt long. He says, listen, the atom everybody on this earth was destined to die before the creation of the atomic bomb. Nothing really ultimately has changed. And so what do we do as Christians? How do we respond? We pull ourselves together, and we do human, sensible things, and we are sober-minded, and we're alert, and we continue to serve God and serve others. See, Peter teaches us here that the purpose of being alert is so that you might pray more effectively. When we are not alert and sober-minded, our prayer lives are distracted and powerless. When we're not present in prayer, when we're not present with God, we don't know how to pray. See, this approach to prayer is not like, sometimes we think prayer or getting better at praying is about becoming more professional at asking the right things at the right time. As if the, there's some sort of code that we crack. And when we become a super prayer, then we'll know exactly what to ask at the right time and we'll get our things because we cracked the code. That's not what prayer is at all. Prayer is first and always being attentive to what God is already doing. We're not the ones who make things happen. God is already working in your situation. God is already working in your circumstances. God's already working in the heart of your loved one who doesn't know him. God is already working in this world. God is working in Israel. God is working all over this world. So what we do in prayer is we position our hearts and our minds sober and alert to be attentive to what God is already doing so that we might pray into the prayers of Jesus, our great high priest. And that our prayers might not lead to passivity, but might actually move us to partnership. The prayer is, you know, there's a lot of pushback on the phrase thoughts and prayers. The secular world is sick of hearing that because they say, once you do something. But when you understand biblical prayer, it's never passive. 
It's not pray, cross your fingers, sit back and hope. It's praying so that you can get God's heart and then you can move into action. Partnership and do something with him. And so that's what Peter's saying. This is the first one. That's it. That's all I want to say about that one. But the first response that Paul calls, or Peter calls us to as the world is ending is expressed vertically. That's between us and God. But what I find interesting is the next three, which is where most of our talk is going to be this morning, they're all expressed horizontally. So as the world is ending... Peter is most interested in how we treat each other. And essentially he's saying, here's how Christians should live today if they knew the world was ending tomorrow. And the first one, very simply, is love one another. Love one another. Verse 8, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And there's three things I want us to see about the nature of love from this short verse. And the first thing is this, it's the priority of love. The priority of love. You know, everyone has an above all in their life. When you're house shopping, you create a list of above alls. Above all, we need a two-car garage. Above all, we need a fenced-in backyard. I'm just giving examples. Above all, we need this type of kitchen. Above all, we need this many bedrooms. Above all, we need to be in this school district, right? We live our lives with above alls. You go out to eat, above all, we get an appetizer every time. Above all, we never order dessert. Above all, everyone gets a drink or no one gets a drink, whatever. Above all, you never order this or you always order this or everybody orders different things so we can all share. Everybody's got their own list of above alls throughout life. Peter here is saying, as the world ends around you, above all, keep loving one another. Keep loving one another. Don't let the end of the world so distract you that you forget what your call is. See, in this world today, in our culture today, the above alls are things like this. Above all, be right and be heard. Above all, prove other people wrong and make them feel foolish. Above all, be true to yourself. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do what you feel. Above all, win. Above all, protect. Above all, prove. And for Christians, it's above all, love. Love. It's the priority of love. I was reading something recently about the Good Samaritan story. If you're not familiar with that, it's a story that Jesus told in Luke 10 about a, a, a Jewish man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead and, and other Jewish spiritual leaders, religious leaders walked by him and didn't help him. And then the last one by was a Samaritan who uh, should have been an enemy of, of the Jewish man and he helped him. And the point of the story is Jesus was re- redefining that neighbor is not about proximity, uh, it's not about commonality, but neighbor is about opportunity. If you have the opportunity to help someone in that moment, they're now your neighbor. When we read that story, it's a little bit jarring to us because we kind of know the cultural issues there between Samaritans and Jews. But when Jesus told the story back then, we can't even understand the weight of it when it, was, when it hit the ears of the original listeners. And, and here's what I read this week about the Good Samaritan story. When we read this story, you and I as American Christians, we hear a call to care for strangers in need. But Jesus' first audience heard more. They heard a story of love across racial, religious, and political difference, in which the moral hero was their sworn enemy. This story isn't just a call to love. It's a call to love across racial, cultural, and ideological barriers built up over generations. It's a call to love those we were raised to hate. It's a call that should have made segregation in America and apartheid in South Africa and even what's happening in Israel impossible. This is what it means to love above all, the priority of love. The second thing is the perseverance of love. Paul doesn't say start loving. He says keep loving. 
Keep loving. This present tense verb, reinforced by the adjective earnestly, which can also be translated constantly, it means it's something to be perpetuated. Keep persevering in love. Love must never be half-hearted, weak, or self-serving. It must be concentrated, focused, faithful, and love must persevere. It's not really biblical love until it's persevering love. Until the other person hasn't given you a reason not to love them, it's not persevering love. I came across this statistic last week when I was preparing for actually last Sunday's message in Rochester. A third of people in a relationship consider their other half to be, quote unquote, the most annoying person they know. <laughs> because no one, no, no one look at your spouse or your, or your significant other. A poll of 2,000 people found that they typically spend a fifth of their day, it's almost five hours, feeling annoyed at their partner because of snoring, passing wind, loudness, messiness, and rudeness. A third consider their other half to be the most annoying person in the world that they know. And you know what? Listen, people chase marriage because they're looking for perfect love. But how many of you that are married have found that perfect love is not what's on the table? But persevering love is. And it's the same with community. People join a community like a church hoping for a perfect love, and then two weeks in, someone offends them, and they run off or they move on because they realize it's not perfect love. But even this church is not an opportunity to experience perfect love except for the love of Jesus. But when we're talking about horizontal love, what you're actually offered here at Trinity is an opportunity to learn persevering love, (laughs) to keep persevering even through our differences. And the last thing about love that Peter says here is the provision of love. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. How many of you have heard that phrase out of context probably many times throughout your life? Can I say what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean love covers up a multitude of sins. It doesn't mean that love ignores the problems of sin. Love actually often causes us to deal with sin, right? Peter is not suggesting that we sweep under the rug every bad thing that happens or that in the name of love we let people walk over us. His point is this. When true love flourishes, we are not easily offended, and we are willing to endure injustices. One of the commentators said it this way, love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes the air from one caught on fire. Similarly, as long as oxygen is present, a forest fire will rage. But if we could somehow take all the air away, the blaze would settle down and great tracts of land and trees would be saved. May we love each other in this way. May nothing, listen to this phrase, In our church, in our church family, may nothing evil be allowed to breathe for long. May we keep short accounts. The last days that we're in demand our sincere love. So what does love mean as a covering? doesn't mean that everybody gets away with everything and anything. What it means is this, that love provides a safe space to grow, to be wrong, to sin, to get it wrong, and then to repent. Love covers it all. R.C. Sproul said, Covering love is how families actually survive because family members know each other's foibles, weaknesses, and failures. And the bond of a family will not last long if there is constant petty complaining, if there's no covering of love in the home. And the church is a family too. Love covers a multitude of sins. And when we think of what Jesus did for us, providing the ultimate covering for all of our sins, how can we not then be willing to provide covering, which is, again, not cover up, but grace, safety, opportunity to repent and to be right 
to our friends and our family. So we love one another. The second thing that Peter says we should do at the end of the world is welcome one another. He says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, this was especially important in the first century because public lodging back then was uh, often not available. When it was available, often not affordable. And when it was affordable, often not safe. And so the actual mission of Jesus, which was the spreading of the gospel throughout the known world, it depended on the hospitality of people providing food and lodging and finances for those who were traveling with the gospel. You know, Jesus depended on the support of other people. Other people like Mary and Martha and Lazarus would open up their homes so that that Jesus would have a place to sleep and eat and stay. It was Jesus' ministry of the gospel was actually built upon the hospitality of other people. And hospitality is so important. Actually, in Titus chapter 1, verse 8, when the Apostle Paul is giving this young pastor, Titus, a list of qualifications of church elders, which were like church pastors, he said, if you're going to be a pastor, elder, spiritual leader in a church, here's a list of things that should be true of you. And buried right in the middle of that list is hospitality. I think it's one of the most overlooked spiritual disciplines sometimes in the American church because we, we live in a world now where we can get in and out of our houses without seeing anybody. Hospitality is not something that we exercise regularly. John Dennis, who's the pastor of Holy Trinity Church in Chicago, said this. I love this first sentence. He says, the key with hospitality, ready? The key with hospitality is to begin. Just start. Just do it. We complicate it. Just begin. It doesn't matter if you live in an apartment, a dorm, or a house. Once a week, opening up our home, baking a few cookies, saying hello to somebody in an elevator, checking up on an older neighbor, uh, providing sugar for someone that needs it in the next apartment. Yes, the city and even our neighborhoods in the suburbs can be places of isolation, but they don't have to be. It may be that through our doors, all kinds of people will come into our homes. One who is hungry, an intellectual who is questioning, a colleague in crisis, a student from a far-off land. It may be that God's new people from the nations will sit around our tables. It may be that having a shared meal and having tasted of Christ, their own table will be open for the gospel in a country that we could never reach. Do not practice hospitality to get conversions. We practice hospitality not because someone maybe is going to follow Jesus because of it. We practice hospitality because it's right and it's the heart of God. We practice hospitality because we are God's people and we have been brought in on something that we don't deserve. And so we bring others in. We share God's goodness through our home because God has shown his goodness to us. And here's what hospitality looks like, his grace overflowing the threshold of our homes. Hospitality. Hospitality will cost you, and it's right in the text we see it. Peter says, offer hospitality, show hospitality with one another, and then this phrase, without grumbling. Without grumbling. Now, I, I know all the caveats on boundaries. I understand the danger of being a giver is that there's plenty of takers. I get all that. But Peter, when he says, is, when he says show hospitality without grumbling, what he's teaching us is actually really interesting. He's saying one of the indicators that you're being as hospitable as you should be as a child of God is that you're tempted to grumble about it. It's actually demanding of you. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. It's costing you something. So if you think you're being hospitable, but it never ever starts to push in on your life, and you're never tempted to grumble about your level of hospitality, then maybe, according to what Peter is saying here, we have some room for growth. Hospitality will lead us. Genuine biblical hospitality will lead us to the edge of grumbling, because we're giving quite a bit to people. 
And yet in that, we do not grumble. I get boundaries. I'm, I'm not against any of that. But I think most of us, if we're honest, probably err more on the side of keeping people out too much than bringing them in too much. One other thing I want to say about hospitality. Some people would say, well, this is just not me. Like, I'm an introvert. It's not my personality. Here's the problem uh, if that's how you feel. Peter didn't address these words just to extroverts. Peter didn't address these words just to church leaders. Peter didn't address these words just to people with big homes. He expected his letter to be read out loud in front of every person in that church. So what it means is that this is for all of us. There is a way in which each of our lives can regularly demonstrate hospitality. And let me say, it may not look the same, and that's okay. It's not about the exact same method. It's about the same heart. Rosaria Butterfield, in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, says this. Knowing your personality and your sensitivities does not excuse you from ministry or hospitality. It means that you're just going to need to prepare for it differently than others might. So welcome one another. And then lastly, as we finish, serve one another. Let's go back and read verses 10 and 11 because it's been a little while. Verse 10, Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. So what I want us to notice about this verse, is it with us? Yeah. So it doesn't say if each has received a gift. <laughs> it says as each. You know what Peter's assuming here? Every single one of us has received a gift. So you don't have to wonder this morning, have I received the gift? And is this from notes? As each has received a gift, and even though it's singular there in the Greek, it's, it can be plural also. So it's not just one gift. Many of you have received multiple gifts. But as we have received a gift as good stewards of God's very grace, and that word stewards means that we do not own these gifts, but we steward them. And when you steward someone else's thing, when somebody loans you something, that means that they get the ultimate say on how that thing is used. So God, in this case, has a say in how we use our gifts. So when you look at the gifts that you have, it's actually not your role to decide how you're going to use them. It's God's role to direct you and lead you and guide you in how you should use your gifts. And so not if, it's as, everyone has a gift, not just one gift, but several gifts. However, also, this is important to understand, no one Christian has all the gifts, which is why we need each other. We do not own the gifts, we steward them. And then Peter does something interesting here. I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me. He divides the gifts into two different categories. He talks about speaking and serving. There's several lists of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, but when when Peter talks about speaking gifts, he's talking about things like teaching, prophecy, apostleship, tongues, interpretation of tongues, exhortation, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. Those are all lists from the New Testament. When he talks about serving gifts, he's including things like giving, leading, administration, mercy, helping, healings, miracles. And the way I would categorize speaking gifts and serving gifts is that some are on-the-stage gifts, and then there are some behind-the-scene gifts. And what Peter wants us to know is that they're equally valuable. We live in a culture and a society where I think we value on-the-stage gifts more than we value behind-the-scene gifts. But that's not how it works in the kingdom, and that's not how Jesus looks at it. If he didn't give you an on-the-stage gift, then serve faithfully with your behind-the-scenes gift and know that you have a place and a role. We need all the gifts. My youngest daughter, Maddie, who's nine years old, 
has just started to learn to play the trumpet, which is exciting for her. If you don't know my daughter Maddie, she has cerebral palsy, and so she only has use of one arm, but the trumpet is an instrument that you can actually play with one hand. Actually, it's the instrument that I played in high school. And here's a picture of her. My wife put together this little device so that uh, the trumpet is being held up by a half of a music stand, and there she is playing, and she does okay. She gets some, some good sounds. Uh, good sounds, I'm being kind, but she gets sounds uh, out of it. When I chose the trumpet in high school, I chose it for two reasons. I, I, I quickly learned it's the loudest. And I also learned it almost always has the melody. It's out front. It's like, it's, you know, there's a lot of other instruments that are kind of behind the scenes doing their part. And yet, when you listen to an orchestra, what makes an orchestra, a symphonic orchestra, an amazing experience is not that, can you imagine if every instrument tried to play the trumpet's part? It'd be unbearable. Couldn't listen to it. Every instrument is just playing the part written for it by a composer and directed by a conductor. And in our lives, the composer of our lives is God. The conductor of our lives is the Holy Spirit. And you have a part to play. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. If this is your church home and, you don't, and you're not using your gift here in some way, we're suffering because of it. It's our loss. It's our loss. Jesus placed you here with a gift for your brothers and sisters. It's not just your loss, it's our loss. And so this morning, just be prayerful. Say, Lord, how should I be stewarding the gifts that you've given me? How are you using your gifts to serve others in the church? How are you using your gifts to serve others outside of the church? And are you also humbly positioning yourself to benefit from other people's gifts? And I think Peter would say, if the answer to those was mostly no, what are you waiting for? The end of all things is at hand. And then he ends his verse by saying, all of this is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So when we love others, when we welcome others, and when we serve others with our gifts, guess who gets the glory? Not me, not you, the Father. Peter understood this because of the resurrection of Jesus, because of the return of Jesus. The end of all things is at hand. We live between those two realities. So love all, welcome all, serve all. Let's pray together.